I drove up in 1970 in my dad's blue Chevy, and I saw a place with 3,700 people in it that was built for far, far fewer. And I saw things I will never forget. When she died there, she lived there most of her life. After my grandmother died, I don't think my aunt saw the outside world ever again. She's a faint memory to me now, almost a dream, but she was real, and she deserved better than she was. Just out of school and wanted to help people. It was one of the worst experiences of my life. Not because of the patients, but because of the cruelty inflicted on those poor people. I tried to help as much as I could, but I was not prepared for the Think sights I encountered. Think of a ward of infants and children from the ages of six months to five years old. There are 80 of them in metal cages. They had to attend to them every day, all day. These people were literally lying I was injured in by a patient. Pieces. He didn't mean to harm me, but my doctor and my husband persuaded me to quit. Before I left, I was asked by the staff if I saw anything done by other aides that was harmful to the patients. I told them that I had, numerous times. These patients were at the mercy of people who had no business being employed to take care of them. Last summer, I visited Penhurst State School and Hospital for a self-guided photography tour with a few friends. We had about three hours to wander the grounds of the compound, and we could access buildings that were deemed structurally safe. Penhurst shut down over 30 years ago in 1987, so you can just imagine what 30 years of abandonment and neglect did to the Penhurst campus. At one point, there were over 30 buildings which housed or supported residents and staff. A number of them were demolished, and others were reclaimed by the elements. We wandered through a few buildings, walking hallways with years of dirt and graffiti. Large rooms that may at one time have been dormitories, and smaller rooms designed to hold only two or three residents, yet at one point they probably held close to a dozen. We held on to crumbling stone walls as we walked down broken steps into the basement. Some areas seemed staged, as if the crew that runs the Halloween Haunted Asylum left certain items sitting out, like a worn-out teddy bear on an old metal bed frame, or a pile of dusty toys in the middle of a room where there was also a blackboard and some filing cabinets. Could that have been a classroom in the basement? The buildings we wandered past created a courtyard. In the middle was an open grassy area with old playground equipment still set up to one side, and it was impossible to tell its age. Sometimes we wandered off on our own, my friends and I, and sometimes we walked together. Each of us were so affected by what we saw and what we felt. I'm not talking about ghosts or spirits. I'm talking about the lingering pain and suffering that seeped into the walls and the floors from decades of abuse. Was this abuse intentional? You'll hear a few different viewpoints. The plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit filed against Penhurst, its superintendent, staff, physicians, and the Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare back in 1974 believed that, yes, much of the abuse was intentional. Was the state to blame for not providing enough funding, never enough doctors or nurses, never enough aides or teachers, never enough of anything, and admitting entirely too many children? In the 50s, there were over 3,500 residents from eastern Pennsylvania who called Penhurst home. Penhurst State School and Hospital was once called the shame of Pennsylvania. It sat only about 25 miles outside of Philadelphia, yet it might have been a world away, considering how few people knew about the decline of the institution and how that decline impacted the residents. This is an enormous story, partly because of the history and partly because it is enormously difficult at times to share what I learned about Penhurst and the children who lived there. So to make it a little easier on me and you, I'm splitting the story into two episodes. Part one, which you're about to hear, focuses on the history of Penhurst, its 80-year operations, the children who lived there, why it finally closed down in 1987, and its legacy since then. Part two will feature the ghost stories of Penhurst, something I know many of you want to hear as much as you want to learn about the history. But it's a topic I felt just couldn't be discussed. At the same time, we talk about severe neglect and mistreatment of thousands of children and young adults in a state institution that was supposed to protect and care for them. I'm Dina Marie, your host on this Twisted Journey. Welcome to Twisted Philly. There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly podcast. True crime, 
haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. When I hear the words state institution, I immediately feel a sense of dread and fear. I worry the history of these places will be filled with horror stories of mistreatment and overcrowding, an old world view that people with intellectual or physical disabilities had to be separated and segregated from the rest of society. As a result, they were out of sight and out of mind. I imagine rundown buildings with little to no services, staff that can't possibly manage their responsibilities, which include treating residents as human beings, either because there isn't enough staff, or they haven't received appropriate training, or some of them just don't care. All of these thoughts and so many more fill my head when I hear state institution or state school or sanatorium or sanitarium. Each of these establishments are different, yet these words are used interchangeably and often with a perception of negativity and neglect. That's not how things began in Pennsylvania. Dr. Alfred Elwin, who hailed from Delaware County, attended a conference in Boston in 1849 where he met a contemporary named Dr. James Richards. Richards operated what was considered an experimental classroom for children with intellectual disabilities at the South Boston School for the Blind. This was something progressive, something unheard of at a time when people with disabilities were housed with criminals in poorhouses. Dr. Elwin stayed in touch with Dr. Richards, and in 1952, inspired by what he saw Richards providing for Boston's disabled youth, he opened his own school in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. During its earliest days, the Elwin School was home to just 26 children. Today, almost 170 years later, according to their website, Elwin's programs provide support and assistance for over 12,000 people with intellectual, behavioral, or developmental disabilities, not only in Pennsylvania, but in Jersey, Delaware, and even as far away as California. Elwin wasn't the only school of its kind in the 19th century. In 1897, the Polk Center opened for care of children with intellectual disabilities in northwestern PA, and the first children admitted at Polk were kids from the Elwin School. Polk was nearly self-sustaining. They had farms, multiple spring houses, a hospital, and its own power plant. Looking at photographs from the late 1800s, it looks like a beautiful facility with low patient-to-staff ratios and smiling faces. About 20 years later, though, Polk faced overcrowding with more than 1,200 children in a facility designed for just 800 kids. In the 30s, the Polk School received a half million dollars to make improvements to the campus, including more housing units. Over the next 50 years, the Polk School continued receiving financial support from the state to maintain the buildings, erect new structures to support the ever-expanding population, improve the hospital, the dining facilities, and the kitchens. It sounded as if the Polk School did everything it could to provide a high quality of life for its residents and not slip into a state of disrepair and mistreatment. But at least for a period of time, that wasn't the case. According to a 1999 article in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, resident mistreatment was rampant, and nearly the entire Polk staff was accused of neglect and abuse. As if that wasn't bad enough, two physicians were charged with manslaughter because the extent of their neglect resulted in patient death. Elwin and Polk are just two of the organizations in Pennsylvania that were designated to support children living with intellectual, physical, or developmental disabilities. Two organizations that are around today but operate in very different ways. Both opened before Penhurst State School and Hospital in Spring City, Pennsylvania. Spring City is a little less than an hour northwest of Philly in Chester County. While that seems like a very easy drive today, I know people who live in the area not too far from Penhurst who commute to Philadelphia every day for work. In the early 1900s, it could have easily taken eight hours to travel from the city to Penhurst by a horse and carriage. This was the onset of the Industrial Revolution during the Victorian era, and it really impacted people's views about members of society with disabilities, whether they were intellectual, developmental, emotional, or physical limitations. At the time, many disabled people couldn't work, or they couldn't care for themselves. They might have had limitations in their capacity for self-care. And I don't mean the sort of self-care we talk about today, like a girl's trip or yoga, drinking eight glasses of water a day. These people at the time were called feeble-minded or imbeciles. Among some sectors of the population in Europe and here in America, there was very little consideration for their fellow men, women, and children who suffered any sort of disability. 
Some people took an even harsher view of disabled persons and believed their presence was not only offensive to society, like we talked about in the Twisted Prison series when we discussed disabled persons being tossed in the Walnut Street Jail with murderers. But some Victorians believed these disabilities were a detriment to the population and people with a disability shouldn't be allowed to reproduce. That's how the eugenics movement was born, and one of the most prominent eugenic theorists was a British scientist named Francis Galton. Galton's research centered around prominent British families. He looked at traits and attributes of the British elite and believed matching what he called the fittest members of society, a combination of both intellectual and physical fitness, would result in a smarter, hardier, more successful population, at least among the rich. I guess he forgot about those rich families generations before being married off to their cousins. That was in the mid-1860s. Forty years later, the eugenics movement took hold in the U.S. Now, initially, it was through the farming industry. It was a blend of animal husbandry and science, breeding particular animals with superior genes. So think about, for example, the fastest racehorse or the biggest bull, maybe chickens that will lay more eggs. What's scary, though, is those same principles were applied to people, not necessarily breeding, but preventing people with disabilities from breeding. This sounds so much like Hitler's beliefs in Nazi Germany. And while it's easy to point the finger at Germany in the 30s and 40s, those same concepts existed in the U.S. and the U.K. long before Hitler came to power. This is part of our country's history. It's part of our world's history. Separating intellectually and physically disabled persons from the rest of able-bodied society was the norm in the 1800s and early 1900s. Instead of allowing people with all levels of physical and intellectual ability to interact with one another, it's as if the Victorian sensibilities couldn't stomach people they deemed inferior to themselves. These children and adults weren't just separated. They were moved out, moved far away. Certainly, the air in the country would be much more conducive to healthful rejuvenation. That's what some people wanted you to believe, but make no mistake. These locations for state schools and institutions were chosen because they were so very far away from populated cities. When Elwyn opened, it was one of the only locations, at least at the time, that was in the city. Spring City, the site of Penhurst State School and Hospital, was a far distance from the hustle and bustle of Philadelphia. In January 1903, the state of Pennsylvania approved the creation of the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. There's that phrase again, feeble-minded. When I'm quoting history or court documents, you will hear terms and phrases that were used 50 to 100 or more years ago, which do not recognize someone as an individual who happens to have a disability. Person-first language didn't exist then. A great infographic my daughter shared on social media lists words to say and words to avoid when you're speaking in a first-person language palette. In many cases, we're talking about people and physicians and rules and authorities from 100 to 150 years ago. I will try to minimize language that may be unsettling or offensive as often as possible while I share this story. But in some cases, people who used these words in the 50s and 60s or back in the 1800s didn't have another language palette. They were using words society deemed appropriate at the time. What I found so strange about the inception of Eastern State Institution, which eventually became the Penhurst State School and Hospital, is the purpose of this establishment was the care of people with an intellectual disability and people suffering from epilepsy, as if those disabilities were synergistic. This wasn't just a long-term care facility. Penhurst was founded on the directive of detention, training, and care of what the state called, back in the early 1900s, idiotic and feeble-minded persons. Detention is very different than training and care. Detention basically means to keep someone in official custody, like a prisoner. When you read documentation from the Pennsylvania State Legislature in 1903, when they approved creating this institution, their description referred to anticipated residents as inmates. Their words and definitions are sterile and almost accusatory. As I researched the history of Penhurst, I tried to keep in mind I was reading reports from the turn of the last century, but it all felt so very uncomfortable. 
The Pennsylvania legislature also made very clear stipulations about the construction and layout of the grounds. They required the structures be separated into two sections. One was for education and industry, while the other was for custody and asylum. Their words, not mine. The state also required the institution provide schoolhouses, a gymnasium, a workshop, and a hospital designed to house at least 500 residents. The location was to be one that provided considerable space, enabling the institution to grow as needed, construct more housing units, and other additions to accommodate future population growth. But the facility was never able to adequately support its residents, no matter how much acreage was available and no matter how many buildings were added to the campus. The Eastern State Institution opened in 1908 with eight halls five years after the initial decree approving the development of a state-run facility by the Pennsylvania State Legislature. Within the first few years after opening, more structures were added, including farm buildings to support campus agriculture, sewage, and power plants. On November 23, 1908, the first resident entered the institution. Patients were categorized as either imbecile or insane and their physical status was registered as either epileptic or healthy. So many children with epilepsy were considered mentally deficient, according to the institution's classifications, and that couldn't have been farther from the truth. Almost immediately, the facility became overcrowded. There were so many reasons for this. One was the ease with which someone could be admitted, at least in the early years. All that was required was a doctor's note, basically a doctor's signature on a committal paper. Very little information about the resident, their medical history, how long they'd been treated was required. People with intellectual disabilities or epilepsy weren't the only persons admitted into the institution. Remember, Victorian sensibilities, also known as selective Darwinism and eugenics, Anyone deemed inappropriate to live in polite society could be confined to a state hospital. This was true of facilities all over the country. Some of the overcrowding had nothing to do with the state legislature's mission for this institution. It had everything to do with getting undesirables like criminals or orphans and immigrants out of the city and hidden away in an institution. When the institute opened, the buildings weren't named. They were lettered. P was the teacher's residence. Q, T, U, and V were housing units for boys, while buildings H, I, and K were housing units for girls. No, they did not do this in alphabetical order. The kitchen and food storage was in building G. The schoolhouse was in building R. That was the beginning of what we know as Penhurst State School and Hospital. Eight buildings arranged in what was called a cottage plan. They were placed closely together, and eventually, if you looked at the grounds from high above the buildings, you could see they were adjacent to one another and formed a large rectangle with a center courtyard. Eventually, more structures were added around that original formation. Penhurst operated like a city. They had their own power supply. They didn't need to connect to city or county power or water supplies. There were farms where much of the food supplies were grown and harvested. Teachers and eventually much of the staff were able to live on the grounds. There was very little need for anyone associated with the institution to leave, including the residents, many of whom were children. In 1912, the institution superintendent complained to the board and to the Pennsylvania State Legislature that the concept for this institution was tragically flawed. It is without question absolutely wrong to place the feeble-minded and epileptic in the same institution. They are not the same. They are as different, one from the other, as day is from night. They are mentally, physically, and morally incompatible and require entirely different treatment. As I mentioned earlier, it made no sense to me why this facility was designated for people with intellectual disabilities and persons suffering from epilepsy. Someone who has seizures isn't necessarily intellectually disabled, yet they were treated as if they were an affront to society, someone who should be hidden away. Their needs were very different. Their physical care, medical care, everything was different about these two groups of people who were shuttered away inside these enormous red brick structures in what would have been considered the middle of nowhere 100 years ago. The following year, the Pennsylvania State Legislature appointed a committee for the care of the feeble-minded. Jesus, the number of times that phrase is used over and over. Now, you'd think this commission was designed to look out for the children at Pennhurst State School to protect them and ensure they're receiving compassionate care, appropriate education and engagement in a manner that supports their disability. But this commission told the state, and this is a quote, the feeble-minded are unfit for citizenship and considered them a menace to the state. 
Clearly, this group of old, learned white men, because we all know that's what they were, had absolutely no intention of protecting the residents at this institution. Their focus was protecting society from these children. Those attitudes lingered for decades. Each year, the Board of Trustees of the Institute provided what we would call today an annual or biannual report. By 1916, there were over 1,200 residents at the Institute. Expansion was one of the key areas of focus that year, not expansion to comfortably and effectively accommodate the few hundred extra residents they already had, but building an all-girls campus at Penhurst, far away from the boys because, God forbid, we let feeble-minded young adults procreate. Their plans indicated a desire to double capacity to 2,400 residents, 1,200 boys and 1,200 girls. These reports, at least in the early 1900s, especially decried girls and young women with intellectual disabilities. They were perceived to be an even greater threat than boys because females would pass along the inherited feeble-minded traits and these reports literally called feeble-minded girls a greater menace to society. The fact any women survived history and that we continue not only to survive but thrive is a fucking miracle. Penhurst State School and Hospital operated for close to 80 years, and the last 15 or so were after a class action lawsuit was filed in 1974 against the facility, staff, physicians, and the Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare. We're going to get into what happened and why Penhurst continued to remain open long after the community and really the world knew what was happening there. But we've got a little ways to go to get there, and this is not an easy story to tell. Over the course of those 80 years, more than 10,000 people called Penhurst home. Some lived there their entire lives. Some died there in rooms that were designed for three beds but housed a dozen people, or in small dormitory rooms meant to hold 8 to 10 people but housed 20 or 30 in one room. How do you provide any level of quality care? How could someone have any quality of life or be treated like an individual with respect and dignity in those conditions? You can't. And that's what life was like for decades for thousands of residents at Penhurst State School and Hospital. Almost 70 years ago, parents of children with disabilities in Minneapolis, Minnesota, formed an organization known as the Association of Retarded Citizens, or ARC. ARC is an organization dedicated to supporting people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. ARC's early founders were a group of parents who thought there had to be something better for their children than an institution. And for those living within the walls of a state-run school or hospital, there had to be a minimum of care required for all residents. ARC changed the way our country saw people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. They helped identify causation between infants and children with brain damage and lead poisoning. They were the first organization to fund research about intellectual disabilities. Their work since 1950 has been instrumental in changing government regulations, they contributed to the creation of the Civil Rights for Institutionalized Persons Act in the 80s. They helped get Section 8 housing laws passed for low-income families and persons with disabilities and so much more. All this from what began as a group of moms and dads who wanted better for their children, for every child, for every person with an intellectual or developmental disability. The A in ARC should have stood for advocacy because that's what these people were doing. That's what their mission was and is today to be advocates, to motivate others into a state of advocacy for their children and families and community members with intellectual disabilities. One of the most well-known advocates for change at Penhurst State School and Hospital in the Philadelphia area was a reporter for our NBC News 10 affiliate, Bill Baldini. Bill is the longest working TV reporter in Philadelphia. He joined NBC 10 in 1964 and retired in 2006. Three generations of my family watched Bill almost every day of the week, off and on during our lives. Bill Baldini is a beloved Philadelphian. He has received so many awards during his career, including Man of the Year, Newscaster of the Year, Humanitarian of the Year. He is a veteran of the United States Air Force and was inducted into the Broadcast Pioneers of Philadelphia Hall of Fame. As I tell you about Bill Baldini, I'm sure there's a newscaster in your community whom you adored too. Someone who's been on your broadcast affiliate for decades. Someone you trusted to tell the news with integrity. Someone who was a pillar of your community. He or she may still be reporting, or they may have retired like Bill. But when they reported the news, you believed them because you knew they were someone you could believe in. 
1968, Bill Baldini created a five-part expose about Penhurst called Suffer the Little Children. He took a film crew out to Penhurst State School and Hospital in Spring City, Pennsylvania, because he wanted to see for himself what the hell was going on out there. The access that he was given to staff and residents was unbelievable. The Penhurst he saw was very different than the one from the early to mid-1900s with pictures of smiling children playing violins, building snow forts out on the grounds, or doing calisthenics in the gymnasium. The Penhurst Bill saw almost didn't make it on the air because he and his film crew were so emotionally and physically affected by what they saw, he didn't know if his crew would come back. But they did, and they blew the lid off Penhurst and the conditions the residents endured. These are some of the sights and sounds of Penhurst, the state institution for the mentally retarded. It's located in Spring City, Chester County. In 1908, when the institution first opened, the man in charge bitterly complained to the state that the conditions were already overcrowded. He transferred many of the patients to Q1, a classroom building. Many of them are still there. In the 18th century, the mentally retarded were often ignored, punished, and exploited. Today, things are supposed to be different. Modern 20th century man is much more scientific and civilized. Today, we no longer punish the mentally retarded. We don't exploit them either. We have come a long, long way. Now we ship them 25 miles out of town to a state-operated institution and forget them while they decay from neglect. That was the opening of the first segment of Bill's expose. The series was five segments, one ran each day beginning on July 1st, 1968 through July 5th. Today you can watch the entire series online on YouTube. It has taken me weeks to get through it because it is absolutely devastating. I couldn't watch it in one sitting the first time I started. I knew about Bill Baldini's series, Suffer the Little Children, long before researching this episode, and I never got through more than the first minute because the video of residence is so unsettling. It brought to mind images of concentration camps, people who were little more than skin over bones, and the rocking. In just the first few seconds, the feeling of despair that emanates from that video we don't see their faces, we see their backs, or we see them in shadow, and so many of them are rocking because they have absolutely no interaction or engagement, nothing to learn or experience, no joy. They're rocking because they need to understand their place in the environment, or their disability requires them to be in a constant state of motion or to relieve stress. There's a term for that state of continuous movement. It's called stimming, and it's not limited to people with intellectual or developmental disabilities. But getting past the first minute of this video is so hard. It's seriously fucking hard. In 1968, there were nine doctors and two psychologists on staff full-time at Penhurst for close to 2,800 patients. Bill Baldini makes a point early on in his expose of telling viewers the horrific conditions at Penhurst aren't the fault of the staff. It's the fault of the state. The facility was understaffed, the staff they had was undertrained and overextended, there just weren't enough people to care for the residents. And the state continued to admit more residents even though they didn't have the capacity to care for them. I understand his position to a point. If the state didn't hire enough people, nurses and physicians and caregivers, teachers, cooks, kitchen help, every possible position you could imagine was understaffed, then the people who were there were overwhelmed. When you're overwhelmed physically and emotionally, it's easy to make mistakes or exercise poor judgment. But many of these people knew what they were doing was wrong. Not all of them. I don't believe everyone who worked at Penhurst was evil. But there were people who should not have been caring for others. Bill Baldini interviewed one of the physicians at Penhurst in 1968, a man named Dr. Fear. Yeah, that's his name. I did not make that up. His name is Dr. Fear. And they talked about how the staff at Penhurst disciplined children. And I'm going to play a clip of that for you now so you get a sense of the thought process at the time. I also want to remind you, these clips are from 1968, when people didn't have words other than the medical term retarded as a reference for people with intellectual disabilities. There are only nine MDs and two psychiatrists working at the institution on a full-time basis. They are responsible for 2,800 sick children society's children. This fact sometimes forces medical personnel to work beyond their limitations and serve as disciplinarians. One case in point, Dr. Jesse Fear, a medical doctor. I question him on just how he handles patients with behavior problems. 
We have found uh, of late that it is quite effective to downgrade him a little bit and put him on a, uh, uh, a locked cottage with autistic-type children or hyperactive children, a classification that uh, used to be called low grades, that sort of thing. It offends their dignity somewhat. They don't like it. Well, you offend their dignity on purpose by putting them on this profoundly retarded ward. That's In other right. words, uh, uh, say a child with an IQ of say 69 or so would be put on a cottage in a cottage with the children with an IQ of 10 or 20 and this is how you lower their dignity. That Do you find right. this an effective measure? We have found it in some cases to be effective but in other cases why it doesn't work out. Doesn't this degrade the person who is being disciplined to the point that he may regress? I doubt it very much. Uh, Actually, what we're trying to do is, uh, is degrade him to a certain extent amongst his uh, fellows here. They uh, make fun of him then for a while afterwards, but uh, I don't think there's anything inhumane about it or anything of that sort. I need a minute, and I'm guessing you do too. I would imagine discipline in the earlier part of Penhurst's operation, when it was still referred to as the Eastern State Institution, were more like beatings and isolation. But in the 50s and 60s, some residents were moved to be with children and young adults who were less functioning as a form of punishment. Someone like the person Bill Baldini described, an individual with an IQ of 69, would struggle with independence. He or she might not be able to balance their checkbook or manage their own finances, but they could care for themselves with assistance and support. They could have a job. They could learn to manage day-to-day -day responsibilities in a supported environment. Whereas someone with an IQ of 20 would struggle with language and caring for their own personal hygiene, they may have severe motor skills issues. When Bill Baldini said this sort of punishment was degrading to the person at a higher functioning level than the residents around him, Dr. Fear was basically like, yep, that's what it is, and that's why we do it. Some of the people in charge knew exactly what they were doing. They weren't making mistakes in a moment of frustration or exasperation, which is not okay, but might have been understandable. Some of the staff were operating from a place of intent, as if they'd really considered what will make this person feel like absolute shit. Okay, let's go do that. Residents were medicated when they didn't need to be. They were sedated so they wouldn't act out. Some residents with severe intellectual disabilities were tied to their beds. Others were placed in beds that looked like cages. Their hands and feet were twisted and curled from little to no use. According to Bill Baldini's report, in 1968, 80% of the state funding for Penhurst was used for administrative costs. So staff, operations, capital expenses, everything but the residents. Only 20% of the funding was spent on care of close to 2,800 children and young adults. There wasn't enough money. There wasn't enough staff. There weren't enough doctors. And many of the ones who were employed did not see these children as people. At the time of that expose, capacity at Penhurst was 1,984 residents. They had almost 1,000 more people on site than they had beds, rooms, and space to support. But that wasn't the worst of it. At its worst, Penhurst had close to 3,700 people living on their campus. Overcrowding wasn't the only problem. The facility was 60 years old, and it did not stand the test of time very well. The interior of some of the buildings, with holes in the ceiling and the floor, exposed pipes, leaks, paint chipping everywhere, and you know it was probably lead fucking paint when you think about the time the interior was painted, bricks falling down. In some cases, the Penhurst in 1968 didn't look all that different from what I saw when I visited Penhurst in August 2018. The buildings were impossible to repair without millions of dollars, which the state didn't provide, and no one came in to inspect the buildings. Some of the staff interviewed by Bill Baldini said if there was an inspection, most of the buildings would have been shut down. In the third segment of Baldini's series, a man named Harris Schaefer talked extensively about rehabilitation programs at Penhurst, art therapy, music therapy, programs to help children learn self-care, writing. I call this man the ass-kisser because he talked so much about the superintendent and how grateful he was for everyone who made these programs possible. He called Penhurst a leader in the state and the country, and there were children seen on film participating in what looked like amazing programs. But these programs only supported 200 of the 2,800 children and young adults living at Penhurst. 
How do you decide who gets to learn to feed themselves and who doesn't? How do you decide which blind child gets to participate in programs for the visually impaired? It's like Sophie's choice, but I got the feeling watching this, the people who made these choices didn't feel any heartache for providing services for less than 10% of Penhurst's residents. Why do you think Penhurst is in the condition it is? I think Penhurst is in the condition it's in because nobody cares. The general community either doesn't know or doesn't want to know what the situation is out there. Many of the children are victims of neglect of their own family and in many instances it's almost understandable because the parents have no choice in the matter and it must be a dreadful, dreadful feeling for a parent to know that their own child is living under such conditions. People may not even want to say anything about it because they may be afraid of reprisals. But this condition, this, this horrible, horrible condition at Penhurst must not be permitted to exist. It is, without a doubt, one of the worst residential facilities in the country. It received a very low rating from the American Association for Men Mental Deficiency. There is no reason in this day and age, with federal funds available, for such a place to exist. And if you have to lay the blame somewhere, you have to lay it on a number of people. The people that are running it, the state, and the general community because people must begin to care about their fellow man. That was Edith Taylor, the president for an association at the time that was called the Philadelphia Association for Retarded Children. What really struck me when Bill Baldini talked with Edith was her comment that people didn't know what was going on or they didn't want to know. I am sure there were parents who were devastated over the conditions at Penhurst, people who wanted to do something to make it better, but they didn't know how. They didn't know whom to contact or where to start. Maybe it felt just too enormous. And sadly, I think there were other people who buried their heads. During his series, Bill Baldini interviewed some of the residents. He asked them who loves them. He asked them what they believed people outside Penhurst thought about them. One man said the last visitor he had was in the 1940s, over 20 years before that expose. He was now a man, not a child, not a young adult, but a grown man who hadn't seen anyone from outside Penhurst in 20 years. Some residents said they didn't think anyone outside Penhurst cared about them. Bill Baldini's experiences at Penhurst and developing this five-part series were so emotionally and physically impactful that he collapsed the night before his final segment was scheduled to air, and the piece had to be narrated by another news anchor on his behalf. So you'd think that after what the public saw, something no one had really seen before, a journalist go inside a state institution and be granted basically a blank check to film wherever and whatever he believed was necessary to tell the story. After seeing all these horrific conditions, you'd think Penhurst would have been shut down. Nope. Penhurst State School and Hospital continued to operate for almost 20 years after that expose. One of the documents I found during my research was a Penhurst State School and Hospital booklet from 1954. In the booklet, the school was described as a 1,400-acre, 3,500-resident, state-owned and state-supported institution devoted to the study, care, treatment, education, and vocational training of what they called mentally retarded or defective boys and girls whose parents were legal residents of the eastern half of Pennsylvania. This booklet looked like a yearbook with photographs of the board of trustees and the department heads. There was a message from Superintendent William Phillips, who made a point of stating parent cooperation, as well as cooperation from admitting agencies, was vital and would result in better care and treatment of their children. In 1954, there were six full-time physicians on staff and six medical consultants serving over 3,500 children. Every page in this booklet featured staff and departments, the dental department, smiling nurses staff and nurses aides in their crisp white uniforms and stiff white hats. The hospital had capacity to treat a little less than 10% of all residents at any one time. And of course, male and female patients were housed in separate hospital wings, as were any patients suffering from tuberculosis. 
There were images of the psychology department and staff, accounting, payroll, housekeeping, and laundry. You name it, it was featured in the Penhurst State School and Hospital booklet. The farm was really quite incredible. It took up 360 acres at Penhurst along the Schuylkill River. Almost all fruit and vegetables, meat and poultry, dairy, everything consumed at Penhurst was raised, slaughtered, grown, or produced at Penhurst. They had a dairy, a piggery, a hennery. I'd never even heard those words before, but it was pretty obvious that's where the pigs and the chickens lived. There were orchards where the school grew grapes and cherries, apples, berries and peaches. The images of the farm and greenhouses were really amazing. And of course, huge sections of this booklet were dedicated to the children, the students, and student life. Occupational therapy was provided in the form of work. In 1954, over 150 residents out of the 3,500 worked at Penhurst as a form of occupational therapy. For example, in the sewing department, there were three employees, but those employees were assisted by 55 resident girls. These girls cut and sewed fabric for uniforms and clothing. They mended uniforms and clothing, all in an effort to improve their fine motor skills, which I'm sure it did. And I'm sure some residents enjoyed getting out of their rooms and working with their hands. But let's not ignore what this was. This was a form of indentured servitude, and the courts eventually saw it that way years later. Some residents worked in the print shop, others worked in the mattress shop or the tailor shop and upholstery shop. There were lots of options for residents at Penhurst. Penhurst had three different choirs, a band, music programs. There were religious services, including programs for both Jewish as well as Christian residents. The kids could join sports teams like volleyball or softball. There was a huge playground and the staff hosted games of badminton and horseshoes. When I tell you this booklet looked like a beautiful yearbook, I am not kidding. I imagine parents in the 40s and 50s who had children with an intellectual or developmental disability saw this brochure and thought Penhurst State School and Hospital was the most wonderful place for their children to live and get the educational and developmental support they desperately needed. In fact, they'd get so much more. There were no programs 50 years ago that taught parents how to homeschool, let alone homeschool a child with special needs, or how to provide for their physical disabilities. If I was one of those parents and I read this booklet, I would have thought the same thing. If I don't have the skills needed to properly care for my child, how lucky am I to live in eastern Pennsylvania and have access to Penhurst? I would have thought my child would have been given a quality of life, medical care, psychological care, and education that I couldn't even come close to providing at home. The school wants parents to be involved. They want parents to cooperate with the staff about their child's development. These parents probably thought they were so fortunate, so very blessed to have access to such a facility as Penhurst. So what the fuck happened over the next 14 years between this booklet and the Penhurst we saw in Bill Baldini's expose in 1968? I don't know. I've searched for legal documents or records, and I couldn't find anything that really pinpointed when Penhurst started to go downhill. We know the overcrowding started almost immediately when the facility opened in 1908, and it continued throughout the 80 years Penhurst was in operation. So anything I might say about the changes between 1954 and 1968 is mere supposition. Maybe the state funding was cut drastically and Penhurst had a much smaller budget. We know the facility, even at that time, was not designed to house the 3,500 residents who called Penhurst home in the 1950s. Maybe what made it into the booklet is what makes it into a yearbook. You don't see photos in a yearbook of kids getting bullied or graffiti on the bathroom walls. You don't see a dead cockroach in the corner or an art room with stained ceiling tiles because that leaky pipe has never been fixed. You see prom and football, the drama club or the math club, the homecoming king and queen murals and graduation ceremonies. You see the best of what any high school and their students had to offer in that particular year. Maybe that's exactly what we see in this 1954 booklet about Penhurst State School and Hospital. Maybe they showed us the best of what they had to offer, but they were offerings that only applied to a small minority of residents because they didn't have the funding, the resources, or staff to provide that quality of life, volleyball and music, classroom education, consistent psychological support to all 3,500 residents. There's something else that contributed to overcrowding during this time, and it was something I was completely unaware of until I spoke to my daughter about this episode. 
she's studying a dual major of early elementary education plus deaf, hard of hearing, and visual impairment. This semester, she started taking special education courses. And one of the things she shared with me was before laws were passed in the 70s to protect people with disabilities. In the 40s and the 50s, probably even up until the 60s in some areas, schools had the power to simply say no if they didn't want to take on a student that had any sort of a disability. If someone was in a wheelchair, a school could say, no, we don't have the funds to change the stairs and create a ramp to make it accommodating for this particular student. If someone had a learning disability, something that much later could have been diagnosed as dyslexia, the school had the right to say no and deny them an education. So what option did parents have? There was a huge influx of children in state institutions like Pennhurst all over the country who had no need to be there simply because traditional educational facilities denied them access. And now we're up to the case of Halderman versus Penhurst. Terry Lee Halderman was born in July 1953. She went to live at Penhurst when she was 13 years old in 1966, two years before Bill Baldini's expose. So when Terry Lee was committed to Penhurst, it's pretty obvious what her life would have been like there. On July 29, 1974, which was actually Terry Lee's birthday, she, along with seven other residents and the Parents and Family Association of Penhurst, brought a class action lawsuit on their behalf and on behalf of all current and future Pennhurst residents against the facility, the Pennsylvania Department of Public Welfare, the Secretary of Public Welfare, the Pennhurst Superintendent, the Assistant Superintendent, six named doctors and employees, plus six unknown or unnamed doctors and employees, either still within Pennhurst's employee or former employees. I'm going to share directly from the 1974 preliminary statement. Terry Lee Halderman, her fellow plaintiffs, and their class suffered from both a lack of adequate supervision and a lack of meaningful and therapeutic staff-resident interaction. They lived in improperly designed and inadequately furnished buildings. They claimed staff were poorly trained and the use of restraints unnecessarily and without proper authorization was common. They said residents are often sedated for the convenience of the staff, residents are often ill-clothed, and insufficiently trained in self-help techniques. They said the plaintiffs and their class have suffered and continue to suffer physical and emotional injuries and deprivations from deficiencies in education, recreational toys, indoor or outdoor exercise. They suffered the daily indignity of being forced to eat entire meals without eating utensils. Staff incompetence, staff negligence, and intentional physical and verbal abuse of residents by staff was not uncommon. The class of residents at Pennhurst State School and Hospital were treated as less-than-second-class citizens by defendants who were charged with the responsibility and duty of providing proper care and supervision. They said the fact the conditions that prevailed at Pennhurst were allowed to exist in our society was a sad reflection on the way we view persons whose capabilities differ from the norm. Finally, the plaintiffs in their class said they suffered a deprivation and denial of their constitutional, statutory, and common law rights. They accused Penhurst of being in violation of the Pennsylvania Mental Health and Mental Retardation Act of 1966, as well as the First, Fourth, Eighth, Ninth, and Fourteen Amendments of the United States Constitution. The preliminary statement also included factual allegations about the facility, overcrowding, staff, as well as incidents and injuries suffered by the plaintiffs. In July 1971, just a few years after Bill Baldini's expose, the Bureau of Construction and Maintenance at the Department of Public Welfare surveyed Penhurst. Their report concluded, and this is a direct quote, there are approximately 1,000 students at Penhurst living in utter squalor, housed in unsafe, unsanitary buildings, several previously planned for demolition to make room for new student cottages. So Penhurst had children living in buildings that had been planned for demolition yet never torn down and the facility was still operating. We heard pretty much the same in Bill Baldini's expose, that the buildings would not pass safety codes and would likely be shut down, yet there they were, still housing children. Further factual allegations indicated poor staffing, poor facilities, inadequate supervision, all resulted in gross negligence and incompetence. The plaintiffs claimed Penhurst residents suffered needless and preventable injuries. 
just a few weeks before Terry Lee Halderman and her fellow plaintiffs brought suit against Penhurst. Two residents drowned in the Schuylkill River due to lack of supervision. Straitjackets, wrist restraints, shackles with belts and metal locks were used unnecessarily and without authorization. The allegations claimed residents were tormented by staff, causing great physical and emotional anguish. These were just a few of the allegations against Penhurst State School and Hospital. I could probably go on for two hours reading each of the allegations and injuries suffered by the plaintiffs. Terry Lee Halderman listed 46 injuries she suffered at Penhurst, including cuts and abrasions, lacerations, teeth knocked out, bruises, contusions, bites. The list is so bad, but the worst of it was a fractured jaw. Early on the morning of October 26, 1971, Terry Lee fell in a changing room. The staff helped her up. They said she seemed okay, so they went about their business. A little while later, they noticed Terry Lee sitting on the floor and her mouth was bleeding. Instead of calling one of the few doctors on staff, they just put ice on her jaw. Someone thought they saw a tooth hanging out of her mouth, so one of the aides instructed the staff to pull the loose tooth. It wasn't a tooth. It was a piece of cartilage from her jaw that had broken through her gum. They didn't realize Terry Lee fractured her jaw in the fall until they felt her jaw moving around under their hands as they tried to hold ice packs against it. Terry Lee Halderman was able to speak when she entered Penhurst at 13 years old. By the time the lawsuit was filed, she was incommunicative for years. All of her front teeth were gone, and it was reported she had numerous scars on her body. 18-year-old Larry Taylor was severely beaten by another resident, and no one on staff came to his aid. No one stopped the other resident from assaulting Larry. There just wasn't enough staff. Larry Taylor was regularly given Dilantin, which was used to control seizures, although Larry didn't have a seizure disorder. It was given to him to keep him lethargic. The Dilantin caused many of his teeth to fall out. Larry's younger brother, Kenny, was also a resident at Penhurst, also one of the plaintiffs named in the suit. Kenny fell off a swing in 1971, and it took two days for the staff to realize his nose was broken. Like his brother Larry, 16-year-old Kenny was also assaulted by other residents with no intervention from Penhurst staff. The Taylor brothers spent most of their lives at Penhurst. They were committed in 1961 when Larry was five and Kenny was three. 18-year-old Robert Sabetsky and his sister Teresa. 23-year-old Nancy Beth Bowman committed to Penhurst when she was 10. 23-year-old Linda Taub committed to Penhurst when she was 15. 11-year-old George Sorotos committed to Penhurst when he was seven. These were the named plaintiffs in the class action suit in 1974. These children and young adults spoke for hundreds of their peers. They demanded appropriate care, as was their constitutional right. They also sought compensatory and punitive damages against Penhurst. In 1975, the Pennsylvania Association for Retarded Citizens, an organization called PARC, was added to the list of plaintiffs, and with that came the addition of the Mental Health and Mental Retardation Administrators of Bucks, Chester, Delaware, Montgomery, and Philadelphia counties added as defendants. Halderman versus Penhurst finally went to trial in 1977, three years after the original preliminary complaint was submitted. The trial lasted just over a month, and ultimately U.S. District Court Judge Raymond Broderick ruled in the plaintiff's favor. Unwarranted forms of restraints were used as control measures in lieu of adequate staffing, including seclusion rooms, physical restraints, and psychotropic drugs. The physical environment was found to be hazardous to the residents, both physically and psychologically, to the extent that it was not only not conducive to learning new skills, but it is so poor that it contributes to losing skills already learned. He further determined the residents' constitutional rights had indeed been violated, their right to habilitation, the right to be free from harm, and their right to non-discriminatory habilitation. Judge Broderick ordered Penhurst to find what he called suitable living arrangements for all residents with community services that could provide adequate habilitation. And then his rulings were appealed for the next 11 years, until all parties reached a settlement in 1985. But 1985 wasn't the end of it, though. The state continued to fight some of the rulings for a few more years, making this case last for decades, even after Penhurst State School and Hospital closed in 1987.
1984, the Pennsylvania Historical and Museum Commission made Pennhurst eligible for the National Register of Historic Places. Now, you all know how obsessed I am with Philly and Pennsylvania history, early American history, but Pennhurst? There's a reason to remember what happened there, and I get it. Some of the buildings were 80 years old, but we're not talking about Betsy Ross House. We're talking about fucking Pennhurst. And here's the thing. When a building is registered as a National Historic Place, it has to be maintained. I can tell you from my visit last summer, that is not the case. Yes, that's my assessment, but it's also a fact. The state did nothing to maintain Pennhurst as a historic place. There are numerous historic hospitals around the country with the designation of a historic place on the National Register that have been restored, some as museums and places of education. Pennhurst is not one of them. After Pennhurst closed, some of the campus was turned into a veteran's home. Much of the land that was originally part of the Pennhurst campus, as much as 1,400 acres at one point, has been subdivided, used for open space, other for living facilities. In 2008, the lower campus was purchased by a group called Pennhurst Associates for about $2 million. That same year, the Pennhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance was formed. According to the Alliance, their mission is to promote an understanding of the struggle for dignity and full civil rights for persons with disabilities using the history at Pennhurst. Their goal is to educate local and national communities in the hopes our country never again reverts to the indignities suffered by people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Pennhurst was also named an international site of conscious. Sites of conscious are historic sites, what they call place-based museums or memorials. These are places of memory to ensure we never forget what occurred. These places open discussions. They connect the past to the present and ensure continuous learning for generations to come. In 2015, the Pennhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance came to an agreement with the Department of Military and Veterans Affairs and the State Historic Preservation Office for ownership of the former Pennhurst Superintendent's Office. Their plan is to convert this vacant property into an interpretive center and museum for disabilities. Based on a six-year plan submitted in 2015, this museum and their vision for the future could be open to the public in about two years. This work is foundational to the concept of Pennhurst as a site of conscience. In March 2017, Republican State Representative from Center and Mifflin Counties, Curry Benninghoff, submitted House Bill 1650 for the closure of state institutions for intellectual disability. At that time, there were five institutions left in Pennsylvania. Benninghoff's plan created a pathway for the state to close the remaining institutions by 2023 and required what he called transparent and planned for transitions for residents at these facilities to be supported within their communities by the Department of Human Services. Carrie Benninghoff stated the cost to support people with an intellectual or developmental disability outside these facilities is less than half what it costs within a facility, which can be anywhere between $350,000 to $450,000. When I read those numbers, I was again reminded of Bill Baldini's expose, which indicated only 20% of the funds received at Pennhurst State School were earmarked for the care of its residents. 80% of the state funding was operating the facility. I don't know that same ratio exists today. And remember the Polk Center I discussed at the top of the episode. Polk is one of the five remaining institutions in Pennsylvania. While they experienced their share of Pennhurst-like conditions decades ago, it is a very different facility today and has been for quite a while. It focuses on the individual, their needs, their happiness, their quality of life, their education, and giving them a voice in their own support plans. Benninghoff proposed any monies the state recouped as a result of closing the five remaining institutions should be earmarked for the systems that would provide support within the community and help expedite waiting lists for people who need services but aren't getting them. Whether or not that would happen, I don't know. Suddenly the state has a few extra $100,000 a year. That remains to be seen. House Bill 1650 has not yet passed. We'll see if it comes up for discussion again in the 2018-2019 regular session. The Pennhurst campus now stands abandoned. Many of the 20 remaining buildings are off limits because they're dangerous. They're in such terrible state of disrepair. A few of the buildings, the ones my friends and I were able to visit when we did a self-guided tour last summer, they serve another purpose every year in October since 2010, when the very first Pennhurst Asylum haunted Halloween attraction opened. The Alliance released a statement years ago about the Pennhurst Asylum Halloween attraction. PMPA is completely opposed to the operation of a haunted attraction at Pennhurst that portrays people with disabilities in a demeaning and degrading fashion. Demonizing people with disabilities as a profit-making entertainment is and should be offensive to everyone. We urge everyone who shares our disgust to speak out against the haunted asylum and boycott this travesty.
I've never visited the Pennhurst Asylum Halloween attraction, just like I've never visited Terror Behind the Walls at Eastern State Penn. I've talked many times about the fact I do not like Halloween attractions like those. And that's where we'll end part one of this episode about the shame of Pennsylvania, Pennhurst State School and Hospital. I know many of you want to hear about the ghost stories and the haunted tales surrounding Pennhurst, and I will be sharing those. I'd like to thank a few special guests who helped me produce this episode. Voiceover artist and podcaster David O'Steele from SteelEmpire.com. David is the creator of Arc City Audio Drama, which I highly recommend you check out. Samantha, host of the Hidden Staircase podcast and her new show, Ghost to Coast podcast. Kevin Gallagher from the Everything is Awesome podcast. Kathy O, Tanya, Jeffrey, and Daniel. Thank you all so much for your time and your talents. As always, thank you for listening. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.